0: This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Anishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee people. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis and Inuit people on this land. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this territory, even virtually, and to be in this community. We commit ourselves to the work of reconciliation among settlers and Indigenous peoples, and we acknowledge that not all settlers were brought here by choice. Through this land acknowledgement, our intent is to honor and show gratitude to the original and ongoing stewards of the land as a sign of respect and willingness to learn and heal. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together, may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come.
1: Welcome to The Intersection, where we are building community through candid conversations that lift, inspire, and
0: advance social change. When Clay Buck introduced me to Janet Cobb's TED Talk, The Myth of Professionalism, I was immediately smitten. Janet has an amazing story. Her life experience is vast and she advances social justice with wisdom, compassion, and authenticity. Janet's personal mission statement is to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, do good, and always seek to do the next right thing. Professionally, she's been a professional cook, teacher, librarian, communications manager, fundraiser, school administrator, consultant, and coach. She's a wife, a mother of three, a former Catholic nun, she aims to integrate all these aspects into living an authentic life, going about doing good. In this conversation, Paul Nazareth and I, Kimberly McKenzie, chat about life beyond the convent, how clothes and makeup can get in the way of moving forward authentically. We chat about misogyny, Tamir Rice, and being a mother of biracial children in this moment. We do get emotional, so you may want to have a Kleenex handy. Oh, welcome to the Hub, Janet. We're so (laughs) glad that you're here, (laughs) and we look forward to getting to know you better. And when I saw your TED Talk, I was deeply moved. I wasn't sure where it was going to go, but you have had a very rich life. So far, and probably been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested um, to in a lot of things, but I'm especially interested in that transition from uh, being a nun to uh, what do you call it, private sector?
1: Yeah, yeah. Just being a non-nun. <laughs> and, um, yeah. <laughs> well, because nuns are are. Are the laity. They're not clergy. So there's not really a formal... You're not deflocked or defrocked or laicized or anything like that. You're just not a nun anymore.
0: No rituals of any kind, really. No. I went and got my ears pierced. <laughs> <laughs> there was an interesting situation that you were in when you went to apply for a job. And I just you know as someone who tried to dress up and look professional in my early 20s and even in my 30s 40s and now 50s i've just given up but 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 i'm wonder if you'd be willing to share that story sure
1: so i had been in the convent 13 years half of those years living in asia and when i I came back, I, I had worn a habit the entire time. Like I didn't own any other clothes. My family didn't see me in any other clothes for 13 years. So I needed clothes <laughs> and I went to the secondhand store and I bought what was familiar to me, which was clothes from 1981 <laughs> and it was 1993. And so I show up at a job interview in a floral skirt and you know blouse and Birkenstocks because I had made an intentional decision to own they they were Birkenstock knockoffs right but sandals I had one pair of shoes I was focused on simplicity and and um so I I went to this job interview and I walk in and everyone around me was in a business suit basically you know a a skirt and and jacket and the shot on people's faces was was palpable i mean it was just the 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 whole air about it so you know i it was a temp agency because i had no clue even how to get a job um so you know they give me all sorts of tests and i ace the tests and and i had a bachelor's degree and a postgraduate certification in education and I had run a 14-person English department at a school in Hong Kong. I had taught myself how to type Chinese on a computer with no help. And this was 1990. This wasn't today's software. This was, you know, very keystroke-driven sort of um, progress that I made, right? So I had some skills here, Mm. but the woman was just like, well, you know, you have to wear a professional dress. And I'm like, okay. And I sort of stumbled through a, you know, my boxes haven't arrived kind of moment, which wasn't true, but I had no clue what to do. So I aced all their tests and I walked out and never, ever heard from them again, because apparently I wasn't dressed appropriately to be able to file papers in an office downtown because I wore a floral skirt and sandals. Um,
0: So So I'm really, I'm really excited to have this conversation, especially because my perfect podcast partner, Paul, is sitting here and he is well known as the best dressed fundraiser in the sector and often talk, Paul, you often talk about your clothes as being your armor. What is that? What is that all
2: about? Well, part of it is because I, you know, I'm a plan giving specialist, and I started 20 years ago, actually, with the Foreign Mission Society of the English Catholic Church, uh, helping them grow their fundraising. and And I started really in estate litigation that I walked into years of open estates and had to fight lawyers and argue with accountants who, although I had studied the law and the taxation system through my association. I would constantly be told, be quiet, stupid charity. I'm a professional and I'm telling you what to do. And I'm like, you're telling me to break the law. And it said between the two of us, I'm sure I'm right. And it was only until I dressed the part to fight with them in the court of their opinion that I ever could at least start toe to toe. Right. Since then, you know, much has evolved. Uh, You know, and I'd love to hear Janet, your experience now as a nonprofit consultant. I think you know, when we talk about the tyranny of professionalism, it is only extended further in the, in the world of Zoom. You know, one of the things that I beg people to, I just uh, taught a course the other day and said to them, am I paying you? No, you're paying to be here. This is your time, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So please normalize moving around. Please eat. And I saw two people gasp, <gasps> eat on camera. I'm like, you, what person? I'm asking that you at least mute when you go to the bathroom. But for the pizza, you know, like it is extended and the tyranny of professionalism has now reached through the camera into our homes. Again, I share with people, I live in a really small place that I am trapped in uh, and, and my home is not safe. That's, you know, again, a lot of people ask uh, people of all walks of life, you know, why all the backgrounds and things. And they're like, my home is not safe right? So I'd love to hear your experience now in the world of nonprofit, because that is extended, gotten so much more complicit, although it's exciting that we can now name more, the microaggressions and all that stuff. What have you seen in your uh, in your work uh, as a nonprofit consultant?
1: So I remember when I moved out of, I, I worked primarily in Catholic schools, and I moved out of that and moved into consulting. And I met with a woman who I had worked with in a, in a position. She was a a parishioner of a church I was working in, and she had been a consultant and, you know, I just wanted her advice, you know, pick her brain a little bit. And she, one of the primary things she said was you have to be the best dressed person in the room. And, and I think she was somewhat trying to dig into me because I had never been the best dressed person in the room in that job, (laughs) Um, because it was a, it was a well-to-do parish and i'm not i'm i'm not a person who presents myself as you know well-to-do and and whatever so so that st- st- stuck with me and for a while i tried it and then it was like this doesn't work because if i'm too concerned about being the best dressed and presenting myself in a very professional manner i'm not being authentic because that's not me. I'm not comfortable in that space. I, I can't do it. So, so I've begun to, I don't always wear a hoodie to a first meeting, (laughs) but I am very casual. I, I present myself as casual. I don't do, I never wear makeup. That's not me. I've, I, I have a whole section in the Ted talk about me and makeup. (laughs) It's, it just isn't me. So my take is, You either want my expertise or you want me to look nice, but you can't have both (laughs) because if I, if I'm looking nice and being the, the presenting in the way that you want, I'm preoccupied and you can't get real and, you know, down and dirty with content when you're preoccupied with what people are thinking about you. So, I just cut right to it and, and I am who I am. And you either want my expertise or you don't. Um, and I'm going to show up in whatever's going to be comfortable for me that day, you know, depending on all sorts of things. And now as I've gotten older, you know, to be real, once you hit menopause, you, you're not wearing sleeves all the time, <laughs> you know, it just, we have to, we have to just cut through all the nonsense and talk about what it is we're there for, not
0: worry about how we
1: look while we do it.
0: So I want to take a bit of a sidestep here because that's an evolution. That uh, How long did it take you, or did it take you any time at all? Because this has been a struggle for me, and I know many of my contemporaries. Um, how long did it take you to feel so confident in your truth because your point about if I'm worried about whether my lipstick's on right, or I have a run in my nylons, I'm worried too much about what you think of me. And we're not getting to the substance of our conversation. Um, that's really powerful. How long did it take you to get to that confident place? A minute. I mean, literally
1: like it was fast for me, but that's because I've always been sort of counter cultural to a certain extent. I, I never wore makeup in high school. I remember s- some friends like tackling me down on the high school floor and trying to put makeup on me because they said I should be wearing makeup because everybody wears makeup. So I, I dabbled more in trying to fit in and, you know, do the makeup and do the hair and dress up than I, you know, than I did living in my own authenticity. And then, of course, thirteen years in it, in a nun's habit, mm-hmm. people yeah. always thought things right. <laughs> and and it was weird things they thought. I I shared in the TED talk. You know, I went from being a, you know, a eighteen year old knucklehead, um, you know, that nobody respected, to someone who was fully respected for anything I said and did. At 18, because of what I put on. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so once I, you know, living, leaving the convent, you know, I, I then had to adjust to all of that. I was somehow immediately invisible. Right. Whereas before I had a presence when I walked in a room, when I walked down the street, everybody noticed me. People would follow up, follow me to take pictures. When one time we were a group of nuns at the zoo, that was quite a, <laughs>
0: They
2: make movies about that, don't they? Exactly, right. Out of a joke for sure.
0: (laughs) There are comedy sketches, right?
1: (laughs) Right. So, so then I had a period where I was a school administrator, and I and I had to sort of force myself because, like Paul said, you're in rooms with lawyers and you know top financial people, and they have these expectations, and then donors have these expectations. You know, so those few years when I was a school administrator, I wore the high heels and the makeup and the business suits, and I was miserable. Was, I was probably miserable for several reasons, <laughs> but that was certainly one of them. So as soon as I could let that go, I did, right? I I just, every once in a while, I will dabble, like I should dress up a little bit <laughs> or whatever. And... It never works. It never works.
0: <laughs> you don't You don't feel, that doesn't feel natural to you. For right. Me, it, a big deal was getting rid of the Spanx. Like nobody knows whether you're wearing Spanx or not at a conference, but it was pretty liberating to go to flat shoes and Spanx. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and, you know, for me, it's the opposite experience. And you know, when you talk about in the TED Talks, you're speaking and living your truth. One of my challenges is very often employers and peers encourage me to tone it down. you got to take the style downwards. And again, my employer at the time, when I asked my diocese boss, what was the kind of dress code? And he said, think funeral director. Uh, you know, appropriate <laughs> is the key. You know, dark colors don't stand out. And, and now as I, you know, want to express my feeling of not just fashionable, but who I am and what I want to be. On a regular basis, colleagues talk to me about how my face is not appropriate when I when I have unique beards and hairstyles and things. And uh, on a regular basis, people are saying with the, with things like the color and the creativity. Uh, you know, I was telling my spouse how when we come back in the after, my first conference, I'm going out as Billy Porter. There'll be a cape and I will be painting my nails. Yeah. <laughs> And and my wife has said, that's great. That's great. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to have to get ready for the next set of inquiries. Yes. I'm sorry. (laughs) Inquiries. What does that mean? She goes, you know, for our entire marriage on a regular basis, people come to me quietly and ask if I'm your beard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and she says he controls his beard very closely. Thank you very much. (laughs) But that's the, the, you know, it's a box. It's a box they want us to stay in. Uh, of control and conformity. And that's the piece in which we've got to help people to say, let's come out in every which way we need to, Because because it's about the work.
1: Right. Because also I think it's really important for people who love to dress up and, you know, be fancy and wear the high heels and things. That's okay too. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying the expectations need to go away right? That, that professionalism is, you know, in, in look as well as in, you know, how you speak and how you carry yourself, that needs to go away. People need to be able to be who they are. That's what I think is really important. Like I have a, I have a daughter who loves to be very fancy. She certainly didn't get it from me, <laughs> but she has been that way since she was a toddler, right? I'm not gonna tell her not to be, right? Yeah. She should and sh- so she should be able to go to the beach in high heels if she wants. I think it's it's not what <laughs> I would do, <laughs> right?
2: One of our more recent guests, uh our, our colleague Villa uh, was talking about the connection. And I'm glad you made the connection too between your partner, a person of color, and its connection to misogyny, because we uh. also know that the nonprofit world is although very female dominated by numbers when it comes to the leadership and the management and all of that area, it's a whole other thing. You know, I was, I was, to uh, you know, I'm a person, our podcast listeners may not know or new listeners that I'm a person of South Asian descent. I'm a Brown guy. No surprise. I get hassled a lot when I fly and I travel a lot. People know me as a traveler and I was telling my friends uh, and a new spouse of one of my best friends that I was flying and I was getting hassled as usual and she said, oh, Paul, were well, you were dressed professionally. I know it's something that we've got to do. She actually is a person of uh, Chinese descent. And I said, I was in a three-piece suit. And she said, you know, maybe you need to invest in a four-piece suit. <laughs> and I, I, we were playing a board game at the time. And I was livid. And I stood up in anger. And she put her hand on my shoulder. And she actually works in the executive office of a Fortune 100 Canadian company. And she said, and my title right now too is vice president. And she put her hand on my shoulder and said, "Mr. Vice President, it doesn't matter what I wear, because that will never be an option for me." Yeah. And that's something that, we, again, all of our community, we better figure out how to back each other up mm-hmm. to create access to these spaces and break out of the box.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, because it it is it's it's based on expectations and boxes that people set up long ago when the whole world was white men. The whole powerful world was white men. We so, have
0: to break out of that. So let's let's talk about Tamir Rice and what that moment meant for you. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> um
1: so Tamir Rice was 12 and he was playing in a park and with a toy gun, and and he was shot within under two seconds of the police arriving. And at the time, I was the president. <clears throat> sorry, that's all right. <clears throat> the The president of a high school with brown children, so half the student body was um, black children, um, a lot boys and girls, and the other half was primarily of Mexican descent, um, and. The, the faculty and, and the powers that be at the archdiocese that I worked under were very concerned about teaching these kids to be disciplined and lining up in the hallways and tucking in your shirt and, you know, being quiet between classes. And, and I stood in the parking lot or I sat in my car in the parking lot staring at this building, thinking, what am I doing? These kids, half of them are in fear for their life when they walk home, and the other half are in fear that their parents are going to be deported. And I'm worried that their shirts are tucked in. It it was a total disconnect. And I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I bought a gray hoodie and, and I, it became my new habit. I, I wore it all, not all the time, but most of the time, because I needed to make a statement to myself that none of this matters. None of it matters. What matters is the tools we equip, uh, equip these kids with, To deal with their realities, not my reality. My reality is very different. Mm -hmm. I don't have to fear um, for my life when I walk home or that my parents will be deported or all of the other layers and layers of nonsense that we put on the shoulders of these children at, you know, in our attempts to help them navigate a very inequitable and harsh society. Mm-hmm. Um so I kind of knew right then I couldn't keep working in a archdiocesan school. I couldn't I I couldn't keep it up. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of what I wore, um, the values just weren't the same. And and that was hard for me because um, the Catholic education system got me out of poverty. Mm. So, so, so uh, navigating that disconnect was
0: mm-hmm.
1: was very new for me. Um, so, and the paradox
0: sorry. of both those things, experiencing both of those things at the same time. Um, yeah. I'm gonna go just a little bit deeper, Janet, if if I can have your consent to do that. Sure. <laughs> Um, but listeners may not know you're a white cisgendered woman yes and you are also the mother of brown boys and a
1: girl yes so
0: how how did that moment impact their lives so um
1: my husband is an african-american man and um, we have talked about race from the time they were very small children. Um, and for a few years, I think there was a sense that that they resisted um, how racist society is, right? Um, and, and I think I have a sense of that too, right? You don't want to believe it. You don't want to believe it. And... <clears throat> when all of these um, barbaric um, incidences began to happen and be more publicized, it was, it was like, you can't argue it anymore. Um, So, so I think it just became, well, in, in our house, I think it just became more palpable Mm. Um, as much as you want to believe that someone didn't mean something or, you know, it was just a coincidence. Um, we, we could no longer excuse or
2: ignore it. And, and again, as the parent of racialized children, you're always preparing them since the beginning. Yes. Right? yes. Again, for me, the, the, the question of my life, and I even try to prepare my family to say, please help mm-hmm. me because this is the question that triggers me and takes me into a rage. My entire life is the magic question. Do you belong here? Yeah. Are you supposed to be here? You know, and to prepare them for those things, to to figure it out. Because again, to you know, again on the professionalism side, that no amount of fancy dress will change that, right? Although there are some uniforms, as you said too, with the nuns' habit and different uniforms, police and others, right? Uh, create those instant credibility pieces. Although now these days where that's being challenged too. I think that the challenge, though, is in in our world of nonprofit, of people trying to do good and people trying to to achieve the things and move forward the things they need to is, you know, how can we help people feel comfortable? And again, for young professionals, what are we telling them? What are we signaling to them? That's a challenge. And again, right now, as people talk about great resignation or whatever it is, because I don't think anybody's really figured it out. But one of the things I think a lot of them are saying is if that's going to be the rules of the game, I'm opting out. And oh, that's yes. what I admire them for.
1: Yeah, one of, one of our sons um, had a very good job in the nonprofit world, and um, he opted out. He, he said, this is not, I am not going to be your poster child. I am not going to be your, your um, you know, go-to person for pretending <laughs> that you are doing good for, for Black children. You know, um and and he wrote a very poignant letter to the powers that be and even helped them see that that working with them helped him to to claim that, right? that that but then, as he grew in knowledge, he realized that the very things that they were saying they were fighting against they were actually reinforcing. so. Mm-hmm you know, I was very proud of him. Um, He just said, I'm not, I'm not playing the game. I don't care how much money I get paid or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm not doing it. And, uh, you know, I, he's created a life for himself um, that, that will constantly and consistently and forever um, uh, resist, (laughs) resist the narrative and be in your face about it. And, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great that that he he came to his own in that very young um, and, and won't in his 50s regret having played the game for so long.
2: Mm-hmm. I hope this is the gift that we can give this next generation. Yeah. To say, do it now. Don't yeah. wait. Don't do wait. It. Yeah.
1: It's yeah.
2: <clears throat> powerful stuff. That's so, why, and again, to our listeners, this is we're going to put the TED talk in the show, uh, show notes. This is why it's really key to watch because, again, I think this is something we're struggling with right now in so many fronts because the, the, you know, one of the uh, tools of professionalism is politeness. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> our, our, one of our great colleagues, a Canadian champion, Liz Hallett, And in one of our recent mm-hmm. podcasts, we were talking about our American colleague, Vu Lee. Uh, and people are policing on that politeness. We want to help you advance gender justice and racial equity, but come on, just, uh, you know, settle down. Be
1: civil. We need to be civil.
2: Magic word. Yeah. Magic word, civil.
1: And I think that goes along with professionalism. It's a mm-hmm. crock, right? Like who says what civility is, <laughs> you know? And, and I think, too, just... How how can we confront issues with people who view the world very differently from us by continually agreeing to allow them to continue <laughs> their um, their evil? I mean, because it is an evil that we have to face, and and you you cannot as much as i am a pacifist and i am you know nonviolent etc <laughs> the standing up for yourself is not violent mm. right so if my standing up for myself if my being true to myself makes you feel as if i've committed a violence against you there is something very wrong with our definition of violence right you know I, I worked with an organization, I work with many organizations across the country. and and I don't always agree one hundred percent with an organization's mission. Um, but one time I had to refuse to work with an organization because they were a Christian organization that insisted all of their um, their fundraising language. Was anti-Muslim. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm all for helping you create your Christian message of you know the power of love and Jesus and whatever, but <clears throat> you cannot attack another person. You cannot attack another entity. That I cannot do. So, so if an organization is standing up for their beliefs as a as you know, in any regard. I think everyone has the right to do that. But when your beliefs and what you're saying begins to attack another person, that is not okay. And, and I think professionalism and civility and all of those sorts of things do reinforce that that's okay to do because they're just you know speaking their truth. No, they're attacking another truth. And I, I think that's a very different
2: thing. There's a great subtlety here, too, because a lot of what we're talking about as we talk about recentering or decentering the donor or funders is discomfort. And discomfort's very subtle. But again, it's this weird thing that in our sector, people are scared to death of. We couldn't possibly make the funders uncomfortable by stating our values in the boardroom in which they're coming to sit. So let's take down that plaque in which we state them. You know, like that is the thing in which has been so subtle for a long time, and now I think the community is kind of railing against a little bit. You know, you know. Sometimes we have an overreaction, but but right now I think we're trying to say, okay, let's actually talk about what's the balance in centricity again around community, rather than saying let's toss it all out the window. How's that playing out with uh, with your community and the organizations you work with? So I
1: I think where I try to take the focus is um, I work with very, very small organizations. Like a lot of them are budgets under 50,000, right? They're very small. <laughs> I'm working with a lot of very grassroots, right? So, so they don't often have that, the same dynamics as a larger organization that is pandering to, you know, high-end funders, but they're, their struggle is trying to even get around money like that, right? (laughs) Like, you know, and and they need it, right? So, but I think what I try to talk about is the difference between the values that are driving your fundraising, which should be very community centric Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and helping the donors to connect to that. To me, donor centricity is about helping the donor find themselves in the story that's being told. It's not about making the story about them.
2: Can you say that again? Because I think that's that's quite something that's going to help our people, our listeners with this struggle. Donor centricity is? About helping the donor
1: find themselves in the story you're telling, not making the story about them they have to be able to connect to the story in some way or or there's a total disconnect that's it but that doesn't mean you can't help them confront the the structures and the systems that led to the to the inequity that is trying to be addressed
2: which is happening at, the, at that high level. Again, that's my world. I'm in high net worth philanthropy. I've worked in a bank and donor advised funds, but with donors at that level. And, you know, right now, one of the groups leading that way is community foundations because they work at that level. They do. And more of them than ever here in my hometown in Toronto, you know, they're working with the highest net worth families, multi-generational wealth and saying, all right, we're going to have a closed door conversation. So it's going to be safe but we are going to come here and we're going to confront these and we're going to talk to you about them and inviting them in and said, if you come into this room, we're going to make you uncomfortable, but you've got to self-identify and come in. And everybody was afraid that nobody would, because we're always told, Oh my gosh, you know, in North America and the world right now, if you put wealth taxes in place and if Janet Yellen closed the loop all over the world, they'll flee. (laughs) They'll flee into space. (laughs) Right. And and we've got to know we've got to create a world in which they can't flee, but we also need to create a world in which they have spaces. They can confront it in a safe way because everybody's got to come, just like you talked about, you know, uh, uh, going against your your own community. And again, I struggle with this, too, as a fellow Catholic. Uh, But for me, you're going against your own DNA in some ways. Yeah, It's a struggle for a lot of people. It's identity. It's every little bit of the building block of how your psyche was created. Mm -hmm. But we got to change and we need safe spaces. And I'm thinking of you, Kimberly, because Kimberly Kimberly does it quite a bit with Clubhouse and the concept of creating psychologically safe spaces for people to talk about these things together. Yeah. And that's you first did it years ago. There was a famous dinner at Kimberly's house. Where, where we confronted as fundraisers a lot of the things that were holding us back. And, again, we were talking about our own roadblocks. Again, I was just listening to a great podcast uh, uh, by Whitney Johnston talking about the tyranny of the invisible boss.
1: <laughs>
2: and the invisible boss is you. Right? Again, I've had one of my own CEOs say to me, like, who is someone beating you? who, who is <laughs> Who's driving you, man? Because it's not me. And my challenge is it's me, you know, and, and you talked about the tyranny of not just the, 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 the piece, but perfectionism. Yes. You know, and as, yeah.
0: So I have a couple of thoughts at, at the, uh, uh, and I'm, hes- I'm hesitating because I don't want to ruin the flow of the conversation, but I've had a few thoughts um, and thank you for your, comments around creating safe spaces, Paul. And Mm -hmm. and I have to say that the clubhouse rooms are incredibly diverse and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. incredibly authentic and incredibly real. But um, to get back to this tension that's happening in our sector that you were talking about, the discomfort that many of us are living in because we want to do better, just occurred, I thought maybe the reason for that is because the charitable sector, you know, our sector started with the grassroots, solving problems that government and private sector and society were not addressing, the real, the the human needs of our communities. And as we evolved and matured as a sector, we needed to be taken seriously. So we kind of started to act super professional when really we came from the trenches of the most disparaging bits of humanity, but to play that, that game and to be taken seriously in the business world, we needed to suit up. Right. And now if we listen to the perspective that you bring to the conversation, Janet, with the, the way we're sacrificing our authenticity, the way we're we're not truly getting to the core issues, the way we're distracted in meetings by whether we need to put on our lipstick or wear nylons or whatever, um, and then the social reckoning of how do we how do we move beyond your son's experience of I don't want to be their token black boy, like I don't <laughs> want to do that. Um, the path forward is a challenging one, I think, uh, for for all of the all of those reasons. And and we just had Nicole and Tanya. We recorded. I don't know what the timing of distribution is going to be, but Nicole and Tanya talking about their community of practice in um, in Toronto, but it's online. So they're creating this ongoing dialogue where they talk about safe spaces, Paul. That's a safe space that they are two very gracious people that let women like me screw it up. And then they're so gracious about correcting me and saying, actually, Kimberly, you have caused harm. Like, don't, you know, so it's there's just so much work to do.
2: As you there, said, Jess, it won't happen until we're ready to get messy.
0: Do you think? That and we already and are messy. What's that, Jen?
1: I think we we can get all the mess we want. It's kind of popular to be messy. I think the key here is when people are willing to lose something themselves. Oof. Yeah. When it's going to impact you yeah. in a negative way, then you're getting closer to being real. You You can't, and that's why in the TED Talk, I say, are you willing to, you know, wear a hoodie to an interview, or hire someone that does, because, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. we, we can talk about it all we want, but until we are actually in danger of losing something, are we getting anywhere near being what people call an ally? I struggle with the word ally. I don't I don't.
0: Oh, I got called out on Clubhouse for referring to myself as an ally, but, but yeah, yeah, like I'm not never gonna do that again. But, <laughs> but
1: <laughs> I, I don't ever. I I I think I say the word maybe once a year. Like it's a weird word for me. Yeah. It's a whole weird concept. Yeah. But the reality is, until you sacrifice something or yeah. are willing to sacrifice something, you are nowhere near confronting the issue we can talk about it all day we can have all the podcasts yeah, I was,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm serving on an organization and and our board recruitment process wasn't moving in as aggressive diverse direction and I offered to give up my seat at the table but you know what they did they just made a bigger table <laughs> and, and that's you know one one solution there but I guess I think my final question, and we may not be able to answer it, but do either of you have any thoughts on what needs to happen for your son to want to share his talent with our sector?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a a question for right now indeed, because I'm bummed out because I don't think enough people in the nonprofit leadership space are asking that question. They're all just wringing their hands going, what's going on? They're all going. And, you know, there's, that's the challenge. Is that are the people even willing to say, what do we do, need to do to create that safe space? There's a Get lot. Get out
0: of the way. Get out of the way. Yeah. That's, out the, of the way.
2: that's what they don't want to do, though. Again, I, you know, I often yeah. say that ethics mean nothing until they're costing you something. Right. And that's the challenge is that people aren't willing to give up. You know, we've got two great narratives out there in uh, Anand Girardada's winner takes all Mm -hmm. Edgar Villanueva's decolonizing wealth and really decolonizing philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And they were, for me, sometimes they feel like the red and the blue pill because they, they hit each other because Anand rails against the win-win, but he recognizes the power that seats and and doesn't claim it's going to change. Whereas Edgar is saying, how do we create space at the table? But you're right, there will be a loss of power. And that is what I think a lot of people in leadership struggle with. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you can see historically, and I'm not a historian, (laughs) but from what I know, from what I hear um, at my dinner table, so to speak, um, if you look historically at communities where Black people were given the space, they th- they thrived. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they were destroyed.
2: Mm-hmm. Indeed.
1: So from a race perspective, we need to just get out of the way. <laughs> right? White people need to just let people be, let black people be who they are and do what they will do and given the space they will they will thrive but we keep putting structures and systems in place that get in the way so as nonprofit sector people the the critical thing is for us to let all of those systems and all of those structures go and give space that's you know my perspective that that they don't need us to help them. They don't need us to tell them what to do or whatever <laughs> they know they have the power. They have, they have the wherewithal within them. We just have to stop putting the
0: roadblocks mm-hmm. up.
2: That's wonderful. Thank you, Jean.
0: Thank you, Janet.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the time to have this conversation. I, um, I just keep putting out there my thoughts and, you know, see what people see if it, see if it goes anywhere. I'm a very small person in a very small environment working with very small organizations. <laughs> you know, So, you know, it is what it is.
2: Yeah. Well, let's hear it for TEDx too, getting these voices out there. I think it's yes. just wonderful because your talk was such a was a snapshot of this thought of yours outside of your regular work. But I think it's having a big effect, Janet. I really do. And I think we're excited to be sharing it and hope this helps people in their journey.
1: Thank you. I do too.
0: Janet, thank you so much for bringing your whole self to this conversation. We are incredibly grateful. Folks, be sure to check out the show notes for links to Janet's articles and her TED Talk, Resisting the Myths of Professionalism. Uh, Let us know what you think. If you'd like to connect with The Intersection or have ideas for future podcasts, you can find us on Twitter and at intersectionhub.ca. And remember, please share, comment, and subscribe to this podcast so that we can keep building community in conversation. See you next time.